Well, I ask you to be turning in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And as you do, we want to note that marriage and children go together. At least they are supposed to go together. In our wicked, immoral society, they often don't, as people often have children out of wedlock. But in God's economy, according to God's will and perceptive will and plan, marriage and children go together. And last time, last week in our study, we saw how Jesus interacted with some of his enemies, the Pharisees, about the matter of divorce and marriage. They wanted to talk about divorce. He wanted to talk about marriage. He took them back to the beginning and what God intended in the beginning. Well, it's rather fitting then that in his gospel, Mark follows with an account having to do with children. And even as we learned the Lord's mind, something of his mind regarding marriage, last week we're going to learn something of the mind and heart of our Lord Jesus Christ concerning children. I also might note that as Jesus contended with narrow-hearted Pharisees last week in our text, this week he's going to contend with narrow-hearted disciples in their interaction with children. Now, I believe that an accurate, our text is uh, Mark 10, 13 to 16. Let me read those verses. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. I believe an accurate unfolding of this passage would lead us to maybe give a title to these verses, Jesus welcomes little children, and then under that we will see the occasion of the welcome, the obstacle to the welcome, and then we'll consider the welcome Jesus gives to these children. What was the occasion of the welcome? Well, the occasion was these little children were being brought to Jesus. Who were the ones bringing them? Verse 13, and they were bringing, they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. Who were bringing the children? Well, we might suppose that they were the children's mothers or perhaps nursemaids, but it is interesting, and commentators do note, that when it says they rebuked them, the word in Greek, them, is masculine, which indicates there were at least some men involved in bringing the children. They weren't all women and all, only nursemaids. There were some men involved in bringing their children to Jesus. Who were the children that were brought? Well, the word for children here is the Greek word paideon, and it means a young child, and it has a bit of a a span of range, anywhere from age 12 and under. How many of you children are 12 and under? Raise your hand. 12 years and under. Okay, we have a few. 12 and some who are too young to raise their hand or even to understand what I said. But um, in Luke 159, on the eighth day, it says they came to circumcise the child. That was the infant Jesus. So their child applies to an infant. In Mark 936, a passage we studied recently, it says, taking a child, he set him before them. So here is a child old enough to stand on his own, but small enough to be carried in arms. Perhaps child refers there to a toddler. But then in Mark 5, when Jesus raises from the dead the daughter of Jairus, 
She is said to have been 12 years old. She's also called a, a Pydean. Luke's parallel passage uses the word for babies, brephos coming to Jesus, but then uh, a, a verse later uses the same word Mark uses, Pydean, and refers to the children coming to him. Now, when it says in verse 13, they were bringing the children, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were children in arms, because in Mark chapter 7, they brought a deaf man to Jesus, and they didn't have to carry him. He was able to walk on his own. So the fact that they were bringing children doesn't necessarily mean that they were carried in arms. Verse 15, perhaps, is a clue. It says that it speaks of receiving the kingdom of God. Now, that would likely not refer to infants. They are not able to rationally process the gospel and receive the kingdom. So who were the children being brought to Jesus? We can say that they were children anywhere between infancy and 12 years of, of age, infancy and adolescence. Why were they being brought to Jesus? 10.13 says that he might touch them. Matthew's parallel indicates that, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The laying on of hands was, in Jewish practice, a, a symbol of paternal blessing, as the patriarch Jacob in Genesis 48 puts his right hand on the sons of Joseph to bless them. Now, at other times when this word is used, that Jesus touched them or laid hands on them, it was for the purpose of healing them. Now, there's no indication that these were only sick children being brought to Jesus for healing, although some of them may have had ailments. Now, we should be aware that this portion of Scripture and parallels are looked upon by some of our fellow believers to support infant baptism. Uh, this doctrine, which in turn gives rise to the church being made up of believers and their children, um, is, is something whereby they call these children covenant children, children of the covenant. If there's a, a, at least one believer in a family, then the children are permitted to be baptized, even as infants, and they are called covenant children. And a passage like this is used to support pedo or infant baptism. I'm a Baptist. I think you are too, and I don't think this passage, or really any passage, supports the teaching of infant baptism. Actually, I think this passage tends to refute it. William Hendrickson, who is a wonderful commentator, I have his whole series on the New Testament, a wonderful, godly, scholarly commentator, but he is a paedo-baptist, and he makes this statement. On the basis of such a passage as Mark 10, 13, and 14, the belief that since the little children of believers belong to God's church and to his covenant, baptism, the sign and seal of such belonging, should not be withheld from them, must be regarded as well-founded. He's saying that such a passage supports infant baptism. It well-founds it because that we know that children are children of the covenant and they are to be baptized. In response to that, I would note several things. First of all, it doesn't appear that they were all infants who were being brought to Jesus because of the language they were coming to him. Also, it speaks in verse 15 of receiving the kingdom, and infants cannot receive the kingdom. Then we should know that they were being brought to Jesus, not to the disciples. They were being brought to Jesus as Jesus. In John 4, we learn that Jesus himself baptized no one but only the disciples were baptizing. 
And uh, so why were they bringing the children to Jesus if he wasn't baptizing? It doesn't make sense that it was for the purpose of baptism. Additionally, it doesn't say that they were brought to him uh, for baptism. It was brought, they were brought to him rather that he might uh, bless them and, um, and touch them, but not baptize them. But then finally, as a refutation to infant baptism and the idea of covenant children, there's no indication that it was believing parents who were bringing their children to Jesus. The doctrine of infant baptism, as it is held by some, says that there's got to be at least one believing parent in order for the children to be baptized. We don't have any evidence that the ones bringing their children were believers. We know that oftentimes those who didn't savingly believe in Jesus were still looking to him for favor. So there's no guarantee that all who were bringing their children were um, were in fact believers. Here's another, I think, very compelling argument If children were accustomed to being brought to Jesus, infants, for baptism, it's not likely that the disciples would have rejected them. If this was the custom, of course people come to Jesus to be baptized, then it seems that very unlikely that the disciples would be hindering that. So regarding the occasion of Jesus welcoming children, they were brought though not all carried by parents and other caretakers, and they were brought that Jesus might touch them, pray for them, and therefore convey a blessing upon them. Now, right there, let's pause and make a couple of applications. See here, brothers and sisters, another facet of the multifaceted diamond of the glory and beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. This says something significant about Jesus, that parents were willing to bring their children to him. You who are parents know that your children are the apple of your eye, and you will do anything to protect your child. Now, sometimes that is violated. Sometimes in our sinful world, we see the erosion of even natural affection There are actually parents who abuse their children physically and sexually and emotionally. That is a denial of even natural affection, but generally it's not so. Generally, you don't even have to be a Christian to be willing to die for your son or daughter. You treasure your children. And yet these people trusted Jesus enough that they wanted their children to be brought to Jesus. What does that say about their view of Jesus? They had high esteem for him. They viewed him as one who had profound gentleness, tenderness, and approachableness in order to bring their children to him. Let's be reminded then of the gentleness of our Lord Jesus. When he was on earth, he was not severe. He was not harsh. He was not austere. He didn't make people quake in his presence. He was tenderhearted and warm and approachable. If that's how he was on the earth, that's how Jesus still is in heaven. But not only was he gentle and kind in their eyes, but he was good and holy because they brought their children to Jesus to be blessed by him. They knew that he would do them good. Why would he do them good? Because they knew that he was good. So again, just another facet of the multifaceted diamond of the beauty and glory in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then also see that these people bringing their kids to Jesus are worthy of imitation. Did they do well to bring their kids to Jesus? Yes, we do well to bring our children to Jesus. We cannot bring them to him physically because he's not physically among us, but we can bring our children to Jesus by presenting him in all his beauty, in all his purity, in all his goodness before their eyes. How do we do that? Multiple ways. By bringing them into worship in in our homes, family worship. By bringing them to church where they learn about God, by exposing them to godly people as you you extend hospitality to the saints and they see godly people and they mingle among godly people. As above all, you prove to be a consistent godly example to them in the home, even as our sister Amanda testified, being raised in a godly home by her parents. By the way, Since I forgot to mention that, we had three testimonies, Henry and Annette and Amanda. They will be on, they were were videotaped, and I will send them out. If you weren't here in the previous hour, you can hear those testimonies. You should hear those testimonies if you're a member, because in two weeks we will be receiving them into membership. But having seen the occasion of the welcome, let's consider the obstacle to the welcome. Verse 13. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. What was the obstacle to these children coming to Jesus? It was the disciples. It was the 12. Consider first the rebuke that the disciples gave. When it says they rebuked them, it's the word epitomao, and it's a strong word. It's the same word used in Mark 4.39 of Jesus rebuking the wind. It's the same word used in Mark 1.25 of Jesus rebuking a demon. It's the word used Um, In Luke 17, 3, where it says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And it's the same word used in Matthew of what Peter did to Jesus. When Jesus said, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the chief priests and elders and be killed, Peter rebuked him. So it's a strong word. They rebuked, reproved, and severely censured, presumably not the children, but the parents and people bringing the children The rebuke was given by the disciples. Why did they rebuke the children, the parents? Why did they want to hinder the children from coming to Jesus? Well, we don't know. We can only speculate, but here are some possibilities. Were the children being unruly and disorderly? Well, could be, but it doesn't appear to be. Were the disciples safeguarding Jesus' schedule, saying Jesus has been working really hard? You know, we don't want to overtax him. This would be wearisome for all these children to flock around him. We want to protect our Lord's schedule and his emotional well-being. Um, Some think maybe it was beneath their master. I mean, children were not very significant in that day. Why should we allow the master to be troubled by these insignificant, you know, little rugrats, these these little children who are not very significant in our society? Or some commentators suggest it was to protect themselves. Whenever, often when Jesus had a child and said it before them, it was to rebuke them. And they said, "Uh uh-oh, we see what's coming down. He's going to take us to the woodshed again by the example of these little kids. So we're just going to keep these little kids from coming. We don't want to hear another, another rebuke from Jesus as when he set a child in front of them as an example not to be selfishly ambitious. And maybe they saw what was coming 
and they wanted to avoid that out of self-protection. Well, we don't know why they were hindering the children, but what is certain is that the disciples did not like the idea of these children coming or being brought to Jesus. And then let me just cite John Gill, who is a scholar of old and, and was a Baptist, and he says this, however, from this rebuke and prohibition of the disciples, it looks plainly as if it had never been the practice of the Jews, nor of John the Baptist, nor of Christ and his disciples to baptize infants. He's speaking as a Baptist, and he's speaking against pedo or infant baptism. For had this been in use, they would scarcely have forbid and rebuked those that brought him, since they might have thought they brought them to be baptized, but knowing of no such usage that ever obtained in that nation, neither among those that did or did not believe in Christ, they forbade them. In other words, Gill is just saying, look, um, if infant baptism was a regular practice, they would have been withholding baptism from legitimate baptismal candidates. Surely they would have known the mind of the Lord. So he's using that as a Baptist argument against infant baptism. So I'll end that diatribe against our pedo-Baptist brethren, many of whom are dear brothers and sisters, and they don't believe that baptism saves a child. What do they believe? Well, I'm glad I don't have to defend it because I don't believe it. So, But they are dear brothers, and we have learned much from our Reformed brethren who baptize babies, but we baptize disciples because that's what we think the Bible teaches. Well, let's finally look at the welcome itself. We've seen the occasion of this welcome. People want to bring their kids to Jesus. We see the obstacle. The disciples were forbidding them, not permitting them. Well, verses 14 and 15. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. So first note the emotion behind the welcome. It says, when he saw, but when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. That word, agonakteo, means to feel pain and to grieve. And um, Jesus was angry and grieved at the fact that his disciples were forbidding these children to come. He was disappointed with them. He was displeased with them. And grief mixed with anger welled up within him. They were not representing their Lord well. The contempt, the disdain that they were feeling toward children was not what Jesus was feeling toward the children. And so he was indignant. He was angry and grieved that they were preventing the children to come to him. The direction given concerning the welcome, there's a positive permission and there's a negative prohibition. Prohibition: Permit the children to come to me. That word permit, ephemi, means let them come from one place to another. Permit them. Let them come from where they are to where I am. Permit them. Positive permission. And then there's a negative prohibition. He follows with do not hinder them. Permit them and do not hinder them. And it's the same word used in the previous chapter when, remember, John says, we saw this man casting out demons in your name and we tried to hinder him. And Jesus said, don't do that. 
He's doing a good thing in my name. He'll not think, speak evil of me. So the same prohibition he gave the disciples from hindering a man from casting out demons is the prohibition he gives here. Don't hinder the children from coming to me. And what is the explanation for this welcome? Why does Jesus, contrary to the disciples, give them an open-armed welcome? What's the rationale for Jesus saying, permit them and do not forbid them? First of all, I make this statement, because the kingdom of God includes children. Look closely with me at verse 14b. Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for... The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now, the word for is a word of explanation. Why should, is Jesus wanting the children to come? For is going to give us the explanation. Here's his rationale. Here's his reason. For such, let me get it again. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. That's a significant word. The Greek word toyuton translated such as that's significant. Now, what is Jesus saying here? For such as these, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Is Jesus simply saying, by way of comparison, that it's people like this who come into the kingdom, but not including children? People who are like children, childlike, but, but not including children, are in the kingdom of God. Well, clearly that's what he's saying in verse 15. But is that all he is saying in 14b when he says, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these? Does it not include children, but only those who are like children? I reason no, it doesn't. Because it doesn't do justice to the word or. Let the children come. I'm indignant that you would forbid them because they're a good object lesson. They're a good illustration. That seems too weak. But what really convinces me is the way the word toyutos, toyutos in the, in the New Testament is used, such as, because it implies not the exclusion of the one being spoken of, but the inclusion. Let me give you some examples. In Acts 22, 22, a Jewish crowd says of Paul, away with such a fellow, toyutos. What is he saying? Away with people who are like the Apostle Paul, but not the Apostle Paul. No, away with people who are like him, but including him. Away with the Apostle Paul. You follow? Toyutos is also used in 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. In the context of excommunication, Paul says, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan. Now, is he saying, I'm going to deliver anybody who does the kinds of things this man does to Satan, but not this man? No. Such a one includes that particular man who is living in immorality, as well as any who are like him. In 2 Corinthians 2, 6, when that man apparently is overwhelmed with sorrow, Paul says, sufficient for such a one is the punishment by the majority. Is he saying, you know, people, when they're overwhelmed with sorrow, you, you, you lift the punishment for people like that, but not this one. No, it includes the one he's talking about. In Hebrews 7, 26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled. 
Is he speaking there of just high priests in general who are holy, innocent, and undefiled, such as that? No, he's speaking about a specific high priest, Jesus. And so the such as includes the children. Permit them to come, for the kingdom of God includes children. Now, how does it include children? Does it include children simply by virtue of the fact that they are all children? So that we can say, if you're a child, you're in the kingdom of God and you're saved. I don't think we can say that. It denies original sin. Paul says, I was shaped in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. It denies what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 3, that we are born as children of wrath. We're not born as children of God. If we look at verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. It is saying that to be a child in the kingdom, you must receive the kingdom. So you're not in the kingdom simply by virtue of the fact that you are a child. But he is saying that there's something about being a child. There is a virtue in children that is a quality that makes them good candidates for the kingdom of God. And let me turn your attention for a moment to a similar passage in Matthew 18, 3 and 4. You might turn there or just listen. Matthew 18, 3 and 4. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that children can enter the kingdom because of humility. Now, let's understand that. How are children humble? Are children humble in an inward, subjective sense? Are your children humble? I hear, I see a head shake, no. Your children are selfish. We were all born selfish. Your children are proud. So when it says they're humble, it doesn't mean the inward grace, but rather I think it refers to an objective humbleness. What is humble about children? They are small, they are helpless, and they are totally dependent in an adult world. This leads them to have a humble trustfulness and an unquestioning simplicity. You can tell a child, the moon is made out of green cheese. I'm not saying that, children. But a parent can tell a child, the moon, look at it, it's made out of green cheese. And what? The child will believe you. I remember when my daughter was very young and we were playing wiffle ball and I had the wiffle ball and she had a little wiffle bat and I wanted to get her to hit the ball. So I said, keep your eye on the ball, Valerie. You know what she did? She took the ball and she went like this. Daddy said, keep your eye on the ball. So I'll put the ball on my eye. She didn't understand the idiom, you know, in the baseball idiom. Because children are, are, they trust. They're helpless. They don't understand. They're gullible in some sense. And in one sense, it's wrong to be gullible and childlike. Paul in Ephesians 4 says, don't be like children blown about by every wind of doctrine. But when it comes to trusting God and believing God, childlike trustfulness and humbleness and simplicity is a great virtue. 
God says it. I believe it. That settles it. And so there is something in children that make them good candidates for the kingdom of God. If God says it, I believe it, and that settles it. And so I think Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God does include children. But that's not all he's saying. The kingdom of God is also illustrated by children. Verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Not only is Jesus saying that children are welcomed into the kingdom of God and included in the kingdom, but he is also saying that children provide us with a good illustration, a good object lesson of what everyone needs to come into the kingdom of God. No one will ever enter the kingdom of God unless they become in some sense childlike. How? Children are small. And unless a person becomes small in his or her own eyes and insignificant and unimportant, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Children are helpless and utterly dependent on others. And unless a person becomes spiritually helpless, utterly dependent on the grace and mercy of God, he or she will not enter the kingdom of God. So in order to enter the kingdom of God, To receive salvation and acceptance with God, one needs to come to a self-conscious identity that says, I am small, I am weak, I am helpless, I need God, I need a Savior. Lord, be merciful to me. Do for me what I cannot do for myself. So concerning this welcome that Jesus gives, we've seen the emotion behind it. He was indignant that the disciples were forbidding them. The direction given concerning the welcome, he says, permit them, do not forbid them. And the explanation, because the kingdom of God consists of such as these, including children, because there are children in the kingdom and because children provide a wonderful example of what spirit and attitude is needed for anyone to enter the kingdom. And then very briefly, the action taken in the welcome, verse 16 And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. He took them in his arms, obviously not all at once, but one at a time. And it shows the sincere affection Jesus has for children, how tenderly and how lovingly he related to them. And he began blessing them, asking his father to give spiritual blessings to them. Well, let's take away some applications for ourselves. The first is this. Let's not be like the disciples who made our Lord indignant by their disregard for children. They made Jesus indignant. Let's not imitate the disciples in this. How do you regard children? How do you relate to children? Do you see them as insignificant, as as unimportant because of their small size? Are they unworthy of your attention? Unworthy of your conversation? Do you just brush by the little knee-high ones and the thigh-high and the waist-high ones among us? They're kind of insignificant. Let's be like our Lord and see that children are important. Let's welcome them into our presence. Let's, Let's talk to them. Let's take delight in them. And as we pray for one another, and I hope you're praying for all the other families in the church, I am, and I want to say because it's my job, in a sense it is, 
I'm called to pray for you, and I have a card with every one of your families on it, and I, I try to be careful not only pray for you as adults, but to pray for your children out of what I know about them, for their salvation or, or for their growth in grace. We should be praying for the children among us. Let's not be like the disciples who forbade the children to come to Jesus and disregarded the children. Secondly, recognize the capacity of children to savingly believe and to enter the kingdom of God. Children have souls. Children have consciences. Children are able to distinguish right and wrong. Children at a very young age are are able to be convicted of their sin and to see their need for Jesus. I have heard testimonies of four-year-olds being converted and five-year-olds being converted. Let's understand, children have the capacity to repent and believe and to enter the kingdom of God. And then, reiterating what I said before, encourage your children to believe in Jesus Christ. Parents, you cannot save your children, and you're not responsible for saving your children but you can and must use all the means of grace that God has provided to direct them to Jesus. And again, how do you do that? Family worship, bringing them before the throne of God's grace as a family, fathers leading that family worship, having them memorize, learn and memorize the scriptures. I was encouraged talking to Pastor um, Chris Campbell yesterday. They subscribed to the Heidelberg Confession, and he said all our children are required to learn, I don't remember how many, 127 or 147 questions and answers from the Heidelberg Catechism. How stocked with knowledge of truth they will be after learning all those, those answers and those questions and answers in the catechism. Bring them to church to be in the presence of God with his people. Expose them to godly people as you show hospitality in your home and they're surrounded by godly people, godly families, with godly conversation. You're bringing them to Jesus. Then be consistent yourself in the life you live in front of them. And in your training of them, load, on the one hand, load their consciences with guilt by teaching them the moral law of God. But, oh, don't leave them there. That is the greatest cruelty, to load their consciences with guilt and give them no relief, but constantly bring them to the cross and tell them, here's the place where you can offload all of that guilt. Jesus loved you enough to die for it, and he paid for all your sins if you believe in him. So yes, load their consciences with guilt. Jesus only came to save sinners. They need to see themselves as sinners, but please tell them about the place where they can offload and unload all that guilt onto Jesus. And then, when they profess Jesus, encourage them in their faith. Encourage them. Don't be overly skeptical or suspicious, but believe the best. Encourage them to live as disciples of Jesus and explain what that means. Explain that it means to be obedient to your parents and to be unselfish toward your siblings and, and, and to share and show them how to manage their money in a way that honors God and to do all they do to the glory of God. When they play music, when they play sports, when they study, all they do is to be done to the glory of God. And don't discourage, but direct their faith. Now, there are times when you may challenge your child's faith. Paul said to the Corinthians, examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. You guys are living such sketchy lives, you, you better examine whether you're even Christians. There may come a time where you'd question your child's profession of faith, but friends, don't let it be with every transaction, every violation of, of, the, of the will of God or the law of God that you challenge them. You don't want people to treat you that way, right? 
Oh, you had that outburst of anger? How can you be a Christian? Oh, men, you lusted after that woman. How can you be? You don't want people treating you that way. Don't you treat your children that way. If they're professing faith in Jesus, encourage them, direct their faith, and very carefully question it. And then children, I want to speak to you, young ones. You need to come to Jesus. And did you see this morning what Jesus thinks about you? Jesus loves the little children. He welcomed them. He wanted you to come to him. And if he were here physically, Jesus would, if you were small enough, take you in his arms and he would listen to you and he would talk to you and he would care about you because Jesus loves you. Jesus loves children. Now, he's not here physically, so you can't come to him physically, but he is in heaven. And you can come to Jesus Not with your physical legs, but let me tell you the two legs you need to use to come to Jesus. The two legs you need to use to come to Jesus are repentance and faith. Do you know what repentance is, children? It means realizing that you've done bad things that don't please God, that you're a sinner, and that when you disobey mom and dad, and when you're selfish, and when you fight, and when you complain and grumble, and when you lie, these things do not please God, and they make you guilty. And repentance means... You want to feel that these things are bad, and I don't want to live that way. I want to turn away from those things. And the other leg is faith. Put your trust in Jesus. Realize Jesus loved you enough to die on the cross for you, so that if you put your trust in him, he will take all of your guilt, all your sins, and he will pay for them so that God will accept you as his child now and in, into heaven when you die. And then finally, all people need to take direction from Jesus' delight in childlike reception of the kingdom. Anyone who's an unbeliever as an adult, you need to come like a child with a humble trustfulness in Jesus. And you need to lay aside your own worldview. You know, unbelievers, they spin their own worldview. This is the way I conceive of the way things began and the way it is. You need to repent of your homespun theories and you need to bend your mind to the revealed word of God and let God tell you the way it is. And as unbelievers, we have our own righteousness that we think will get us to get heaven. A lot of times unbelievers, they, they, they cobble together, um, uh, you know, like a, a combination of, of morality and spirituality and religiosity Uh, along with their own excuses why they're not better than they are to think that will make them acceptable to God. You need to let go of that and put your trust in Jesus Christ alone. But I close by reminding us who are believers that we too need to have a childlike trust in Jesus. There's a Norman Rockwell painting that pictures two parents leaning over the bed of their young children, tucking them into bed. And the children are snug with the covers pulled up to their neck. And there's a picture of tranquility and peacefulness, placidity in their faces. But the father is holding a a newspaper that's saying that World War II has broken out. uh, A war that killed millions of people worldwide. But the children are ignorant of that. They're lying snugly in bed because dad's here. And dad's tucking me in, and all is well in my world, even though the real world, all hell is breaking, about to break loose in the real world. But it's okay, because dad's tucking me in. 
Now you say, well, that's the naivete of a child. Yes. But in another sense, it bespeaks the trust that we need to have in our Heavenly Father. These are scary times. These are dangerous times we're living in. We have an uncertain future, but we have a Father who has it all under control. And we need to have the tranquility and peace that even those little children had as they're being tucked in, even though all hell was about to break loose in the world. We need to trust God, roll our burden on him, not take on ourselves what belongs to him, knowing that he will work all things together for good.